0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books.
1: This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker you'll find what you came for here, and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com.
0: Hello, welcome to The Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy here in Los Angeles, California. Happy New Year, 2024. Hope you had a good holiday. A good New Year's Eve, it's over with, we're into the new year, and I have a great show for you. Don't forget to subscribe to the Other People podcast wherever you listen. You can also subscribe on YouTube, follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. So my guest today is Susanna Breslin, author of a new memoir called data baby. My life in a psychological experiment.
1: You know, I had this rigid mother who was not physically affectionate. I had a father that I loved and felt a connection with, but who left the home. And when he died, it really was like I lost the one person I had felt some type of connection with in my family, and it just broke my heart. And it's almost like everything I did after that for a long period of time was just refusing to face the heartbreak of that moment.
0: Okay, that was Susanna Breslin. Her new memoir is called Data Baby, My Life in a Psychological Experiment, available from Legacy Lit an imprint of Hachette books. Data Baby is a memoir about Susanna Breslin's formative experiences as a subject of a lifelong psychological study originated at the University of California, Berkeley. It was called The Block Project, and it entailed the rigorous observation of children in their daycare and school settings, tracking them all throughout childhood and even into adulthood on a periodic basis. Susanna Breslin was enrolled in the block project by her parents shortly after she was born in 1968. The scientists wished to see if a person's adult identity and outcomes could be accurately predicted from childhood. So data baby is about Susanna's coming of age, her difficult family life, her participation, unwitting participation as a child in the block project, being secretly observed while she was at school and so on and so forth. And ultimately it is about her quest to find herself, to locate her true self in adulthood and to reclaim autonomy and a sense of deeper identity. I had a nice conversation with Susanna Breslin. That is coming up momentarily. Before we get started, a quick reminder that I do a weekly email newsletter. You can subscribe for free over at Substack. This is where my newsletter lives online at bradlisty.substack.com. You will get an email from me once a week in which I let you know about the latest episodes of this show, I also share a list of links to things that I've been reading and uh, finding interesting. So if that sounds good, go over to bradlisty.substack.com and sign up for my newsletter. I would love it if you did that. Likewise, the Other People podcast has a Patreon community. If you listen regularly, if you like what I do, if you get something from the work that I do, I hope you will consider joining the Other People Patreon community over at patreon.com slash pod. You can get merchandise, a book club subscription, all that stuff over at patreon.com/slash other PPL pod. Help keep this show going into the future. Today's episode is brought to you by Tinhouse, publisher of the novel Nonfiction by Julie Meyerson. Nonfiction is an unflinching account of a mother, daughter, wife, and author reckoning with the world around her. But Can a writer ever be trusted with the truth of her own story? Clear-eyed, lacerating, and incredibly fearless, Julie Meyerson's latest novel explores maternal love as an emotional foundation to both crave and fear. A hauntingly beautiful and deeply moving novel. Nonfiction is a love letter from a mother to a daughter. It is a tale of damage and addiction, recovery and creativity, compassion and love. That's nonfiction, the new novel by Julie Meyerson, available from Tin House. All right, so my guest once again is Susanna Breslin. Her new memoir is called Data Baby My Life in a Psychological Experiment. Available now wherever books are sold from Legacy Lit. Susanna Breslin is a journalist and a Forbes.com senior contributor. From 2018 to 2019, she was the Lawrence Grauman Jr. Postgraduate Fellow at UC Berkeley's investigative reporting program. Her reporting and essays have appeared in The Atlantic, Slate, The Daily Beast, Salon, Newsweek, The Guardian, and Variety, among other outlets. I had a very interesting conversation with Susanna Breslin whose life story is notably unusual and very fascinating so I'm very pleased to have had the chance to meet Susanna and to talk with her about her new memoir and to get to share our conversation with all of you right now so here we go this is Susanna Breslin and her new book one more time is called Data Baby.
1: So I was born on April 10th, 1968, in Oakland Hospital. And at the time, my father was a poetry professor at UC Berkeley. My mother was an English instructor through UC Extension. And I was born at 1.38 in the morning. And the story of my birth that I have heard since day one was that at some point during that day, my father left my mother and I at the hospital and drove over to the Harold E. Jones Child Study Center, which is a preschool in Berkeley that's run by UC Berkeley, where the children of UC Berkeley faculty and staff get convenient, affordable child care. And at the same time, those kids are studied by researchers and graduate students and professors at the university who are studying early childhood development. So for my parents and other parents at UC Berkeley, this was like the preschool to get your kid into it was you know, sort of considered to be exclusive, and as such had a really long waiting list to get in. So as soon as the kid was born, you were supposed to submit an application. So as I understood it, my father went over there and submitted an application. And the idea was that, you know, my parents were sort of intent from day one on me being a kid who was sort of special or exceptional, which I think was an attractive idea to them. They were both intellectuals who, you know, saw themselves living a sort of unique life in, in Berkeley, and they wanted their kids to reflect that. So that was their intention behind that. And then three, four years later, I showed up for my first day of preschool at the Child Study Center and became one of over a hundred kids who were in a cohort of a study that was trying to figure out if you study a child, can you predict who that child will grow up to be? And that was called the Block Project. Right. Um, It's known as the Block Study. I knew it as the Block Project, and the study was created by Jack and Jean Block, who were married personality researchers at UC Berkeley. At the time they conceived the study in the late 60s, there was this big crisis in personality psychology about whether personality traits even existed. And the block set out to prove that personality traits were real and also that they remained relatively stable over time. The only way to to prove that was to study a human being from childhood and into adulthood. So the idea was they would cull this cohort from kids who were at the Child Study Center and track their lives from the age of three to four until we were in in our early 30s.
0: And obviously you did not consent to any of this. You were, a, you were a newborn. So your parents made this decision kind of like unilaterally or bilaterally on your behalf.
1: Yes. I was not aware that I was in a study initially. I did not consent. You know, at the time, I don't think consent was something anybody would have been particularly worried about beyond a sort of scientific protocol. And I think from my parents' point of view, I, they, were, they were doing me a favor so i don't think it was a big debate it was like well of course this child would be want to want to be part of something that was like important and interesting and you know who wouldn't want that i don't think they were sitting around worrying about gee you know what about the consent of my child it was like of course who wouldn't want this
0: all- yeah i mean they were looking out for you we should say they were motivated i mean yeah some of it is wanting your specialness and brilliance to reflect well on them in the manner that parents often do. But they were also just trying to get you a good education and this was, you know, their best path. It's kind of depressing to me to think that all the way back in 1968, it was dramatic to get your kid into preschool. Like I thought that was something we had come to later, but it's still the same. Nothing's changed.
1: Right. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And it was a wonderful preschool. It was very promoting of the child and self-directed learning for that child. It was a beautiful complex. It was designed by a UC Berkeley architecture professor named Joseph Escherich. And it had, um, it was mid-century modern wood orange stucco on the outside It had really high ceilings, big playrooms, a huge wall of windows on one side where you could move freely from the outdoor play yards to the you know indoor play areas where there were these elevated tables where we could play at. What I wasn't aware of at the time is that the preschool had also been designed for spying on children. So there was a observation gallery that was hidden between the two mirror classrooms where the researchers could go in and spy on us. And it was, um, they were hidden by a screen and a transparency, but they could hear what we were saying as well. That was in this T-shaped building where the classrooms were. And then across a walkway, there was a rectangular administrative building where we were sometimes brought over to be tested one-on-one. And those rooms had one-way mirrors and this eavesdropping equipment where a researcher could, say, set up a situation with us and then walk outside of the room and watch us through the one-way mirror and see what we would do.
0: And you did not know that any of this was going on until when?
1: So I have no, like, specific memory of being told I was in a study, like, Susanna, we're gonna sit you down and now I gotta tell you the hidden truth of your life. I just remember it always being a part of my life as I write in the book. I don't remember a time when I wasn't in the study. It was like nobody sat you down and told you you were a male at some point. It was just like always there. Something I've compared it to is, is a child who grows up always knowing that they were adopted. It's just a part of how you understand yourself. I Around seven or eight, I think, is when I started to understand that these people who were talking to me, at that point, we were brought to Tolman Hall to be assessed, which was this giant brutalist building on the north side of the UC Berkeley campus where the psychology department was, and we would be interviewed in these experiment rooms. And I sort of started to get the sense of like something else is going on here.
0: Well, wait, I think there was a a scene or a situation that you depict in the book where you are being interviewed by somebody one-on-one and then they leave the room and leave you within striking distance of some M&Ms or something. (laughs) Am I remembering this correctly?
1: Yeah. So when I was around seven or eight years old, I was being assessed in one of these experiment rooms at Tolman Hall, and the interviewer, I don't remember, he was, they would talk to us about, you know, how we perceived ourselves, what we thought of our parents, what our relationship was like with our siblings. And I remember there was a bowl of M&Ms on the table between us. And it was, I think, late afternoon. I think I had been dropped off there or brought there after school. And he said... Would you like some M&M's? And I remember hesitating, not, maybe I sensed this was a test. Maybe I sensed this was, you know, a question that meant more than it seemed to. And I declined the M&M's, even though I was starving. My sense now is that I knew that it was, I was part of this project and that I was there because I was special. Why else would this adult be spending hours talking to me? And I think I was sort of precocious and wanted him to think I was like, not a little kid and sort of mature for my age. And I think that's why I said, no, not long after he says, Oh, I, you know, I forgot Susanna, I have to go do something. And he walks out of the room and closes the door behind him. At that point, I leap across the table for the candy Um, accidentally knock it over in the process. M&Ms are, I can remember it to this day. M&Ms are bouncing across the table and I start um, grabbing M&Ms and stuffing them into my mouth. And I suddenly freeze. I can see myself in this mirror on the opposite wall. And I remember feeling like my cheeks were hot and seeing that my cheeks were pink in the mirror. And I just had this sense that someone was watching me Somebody was on the other side of the mirror. I was not alone. And I think that sense of somebody observing me is something that has stayed with me throughout my life. But yeah,
0: it's a little creepy. It's a little eerie, it's a little right? It's
1: weird. Later I found out, later I talked to one of the people involved with the study, and he said, Oh no, we did that on purpose, which was sort of mortifying to hear. And it was um a way to test our ability to delay gratification, which clearly I had no ability to do and still have no ability.
0: <laughs> well no, that's like the and it's like the what is it, the marshmallow test that they do with kids. Exactly. It was children their who version. their version of it, but children who are able to delay gratification, what tend to be more emotionally well off or something, right? Right. Um
1: they're they're the life's winners. You want the kid who resists um, the marshmallows. But the real lesson is don't let me near your candy, I guess.
0: Well, listen, you delayed gratification when it was first offered. You said, no, thanks. You wanted to do seem older, right? So you did delay. Right. Don't either be too hard on yourself.
1: Just, <laughs> I, either that or I'm just a, a, a masochist.
0: I don't know. Maybe so. Maybe it's a combo. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you know, it, it's interesting in your book, the way that you depict your, childhood education and how unconventional it was and how you were being observed and we should say you know you were far from alone there were lots of kids this was kind of a thing to do for academics in Berkeley in the late 60s early 70s who were raising their children because like a it's this kind of brainy thing to do right you're kind of letting your child be part of something that's going to hopefully make the world a better place and make scientific understanding of childhood development richer and deeper and all the rest. But it was also a way to ensure that your child got a great education in a great facility near campus. And as an ancillary benefit that you got some childcare, I would assume even after school hours, right? It sounds like there were opportunities for kids to what be observed or play after school or do testing after school or no
1: there was so we were at the preschool that's where they they pulled the cohort from we were we were chosen out of three consecutive preschool classes but once we were done with preschool we were all in the same cohort but we didn't know each other necessarily and we um after preschool we all kind of went our separate ways we went to public school and private school. And over those years after preschool, then we would be brought back for, to Tolman Hall for these assessments. We also, um, I think when we were around six, there was researchers came to our house to observe us at home and observe us at home with our parents was part of that. They also got our report cards from our schools. They also interviewed our parents individually and together, and they assessed us at Tolman engaging with one parent or with both parents. So there were a lot of ways in which they gathered what they called lots of data, which was a combination of our life history, observed data, the testing data, and then the subjective data, which was self-reported data, essentially our own how we related the stories of our lives ourselves to them.
0: So like one of the points uh, that I would make, or one of the observations that I would make is that you were carefully observed <laughs> as uh, a child, as a school child, a uh, school age child to a degree that most of us were not. I mean, I think obviously we had parents and teachers looking out for us, but we were not being monitored and regularly tested and, talked to by expert researchers and in the in the book you draw this contrast between the ways in which you were carefully observed in school and as part of this study but you were sort of invisible at home your parents marriage blew up when you were a young child and you had parents who really weren't super interested in being parents, in particular, your mother, who in the book is depicted as a pretty tough character. So can you just describe a little bit about, or describe a little uh, bit this upbringing that you had and your relationships with your parents?
1: My parents were intellectuals first and foremost. That was who they were and what they were interested in. And I don't know that raising children is super compatible with super intelligent parents. Because parenting, as I understand it, is boring a lot of the time. It's mundane. It's changing diapers. It's dealing with a screaming child. Raising kids is not engaging in like the life of the mind. So they were both really bright and ambitious and my father was also interested in climbing up the academic ladder in his career and so he spent a lot of time writing books we had a enclosed porch on the second floor of our house where he wrote you know like a this that's how he typed on a manual
0: Hunting, pe- like like hunting and pecking, like with <laughs> <Yes>. two fingers.
1: <laughs> I remember sort of at the door. There were these French doors, and I remember sort of leaning my head against the glass and watching him type. So he was interested in in writing books and teaching. And my mother was also an intellectual. She, you know, her career to some degree had been waylaid by having children. She ended up becoming an English professor at a college in the East Bay that wasn't as you know um, esteemed as UC Berkeley, where my father taught. And parenting largely at that time fell to her. I think she struggled with that. And when my fa- there when my parents' marriage imploded and my father left when I was around ten, I think she. Really, never got over the resentment she felt towards him. At you know, she had done the parenting heavy lifting and he had been able to pursue his career in a way that she hadn't. And once my father left, it was not to, it was hard not to feel that resentment towards myself. You know, the the kids were the thing that got in the way. I'm pretty empathetic and attuned to other people's interior state. And it was difficult to be brought up by a mother who you knew resented the fact that you got in the way of her professional ambitions. So... I spent a lot of time in my room by myself. I read a lot. I made up stories in my head a lot. I played with my stuffed animals. My sister was very active in horseback riding, and so I think she kind of dealt with the situation by just being gone from the house a lot. You know, this was the era of a latchkey kid. I definitely came home after school, and my parents were divorced, or my both my parents were working, and uh, you know, grew up watching TV a lot. <laughs> Um, and so this, I had this sort of funny other piece in my life, which was the study. And it was kind of always in the back of my mind as I think of it now as kind of like a third parent. It was this, um, place where I would occasionally get a call from them. I would go there and I got in those experiment rooms, everything that I, I wanted that I wasn't getting at home which was the close, thoughtful, careful attention of an adult who was interested in nothing but who I was, um, what was interesting to me, and who I thought I might grow up to be. And that was so hugely impactful to me that I am sort of unable to parse it from my own identity. So it really, in a way, I think saved me from a more negative outcome as having this internal sense that somebody was kind of watching over me and my parents were atheists. So there was no, you know, some of the language I'm using to describe this dynamic is not unlike, a, you know, somebody who grows up with um, religion, you know, there's somebody watching over me. There's somebody thinking about my destiny. There's somebody who's always there for me. And that, that's what the study was in my psyche.
0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Yeah, it's like the like the nerdiest, like most Bay Area description of like a surrogate religion or parenthood, you know, having these like (laughs) like elite academic researchers sort of paying attention to your every developmental step, but that is the, the function. It provided a sense of security and safety to you. That's interesting.
1: Yeah. And I think I talk about this later in the book, but I think it also played a role in my becoming a journalist because in a way they were sort of demonstrating what a journalist does, which is, you know, closely consider a subject, have an empathetic relationship to it and creating a story about it. I can't imagine that watching them do that didn't play a role in my becoming a journalist myself.
0: Well, when you also have a poetry professor father and an English instructor mother. So the apple doesn't fall <laughs> too far, right? right? You were sort of you were sort of doomed from the start. There's no way genetically you're not going to be a, a writerly human, it would seem, but I want to talk about this for a or this career in journalism and the way that it began, because I think that's pretty astute. You know, you had writing and literary concerns modeled for you at home, and then you also had the function of a journalist in practice modeled for you by these researchers, more or less. But there is this interesting way that you move as a child from being the observed to, as a journalist in your adult life, being the observer. And You then, early on, I think, become interested in sex workers, sex entertainment, the sort of the sex beat, if such a thing even existed when you started. But can you talk about that, like how it began for you and why it was of such keen interest?
1: Yeah. And you know, I don't know that I can make perfect sense of it because I think part of it was just something that happened, a curious conflation of events. But I I went to UC Berkeley, majored in English, graduated. I went to graduate school in writing at the University of Illinois, Chicago. And I came back and was, I started, this was the late 90s. I started this online magazine with two of my girlfriends from graduate school that we called the Post-Feminist Playground. And we were, you know, sex was something that was part of what I was interested in writing about. I think I was... It was provocative and sort of titillating. My father died in January of 1996, which led to me wanting to become a writer and also grappling with anxiety and depression to a degree that I hadn't. Before, I mean, it's something that I always struggled with, especially after my parents got divorced. I got really depressed, but after my father died,
0: and he was young, he was like sixty years older, yeah, right? I mean,
1: died of a heart attack, and so I think I was sort of looking for something that would make me feel alive and intrigued and connected. And I went out. I think it was the summer of. Um, maybe 97 a girlfriend and a guy i was sort of dating went to north beach in san francisco we were like let's go to some strip clubs and we ended up going into a strip club and i just remember very clearly walking in we sat down at a little table and there was a woman on the stage and i had been sort of apprehensive before going in and thinking like this is, you know it's going to be weird that like a woman is going into a strip club. And I noticed as soon as I sat down in the club that nobody in the club was paying any attention to me. They were interested in the naked girl on the stage. And she, I think, looked to me like something that I wanted to be. And in hindsight, she was probably everything that was the opposite of what I had seen in my mother, which was somebody who was unhappy, sort of thwarted, and and stuck. And this woman just looked like empowerment and beauty and wanted everyone to desire her, which I just thought was fantastic. I, Jenna Jameson was like a huge porn star at the time. She was coming to dance at the legendary O'Farrell Theater, Mitchell Brothers O'Farrell Theater in San Francisco. I found her publicist on the internet and said, hey, can I interview Jenna when she's in town? Interviewed her and then went to their show that night at the O'Farrell Theater, which had a live act if some dancers were coming into town. And Jenna and another porn star named Jill Kelly did this crazy, you know, obscene dance routine I don't even know what to call it and that was choreographed at least in part to Marilyn Manson's uh, The Beautiful People. And it was just like, I had entered this world that was just totally the opposite of the world I had grown up in, which was like, you know, it's like, let's talk about postmodern, post World War II literature, and let's read another book. And this was, if I grew up in the life of the mind, this was like the life of the body. And I just loved how it was just the opposite of everything I had seen, but I was just across the bay, you know? Then Jenna's publicist said, If you're ever in LA, you can come to a set. And then not long after, I went down, came down to LA to visit the set of this porn movie called Flashpoint that Jenna was making with some other people and ended up watching seven porn stars have an orgy on a fire truck in a parking lot near downtown Los <laughs> Angeles and was like, This is crazy. And sort of fell in love with how. It was like this other Hollywood, surreal place where people were just doing these very out there things that you kind of weren't supposed to do. And it just felt like something I could write about. And then I moved to LA and sort of began this career as a sex writer, although the porn industry in the San Fernando Valley was <clears throat> my oh, has always been my primary interest.
0: I think in the book you say regarding these performers in porn films and what do you call them sex entertainment stars or whatever, <laughs> uh, you you say quote that need to be seen that desire to be exceptional to feel above all else special. I got it. I thought like you, there is a there was a line of connection even though you yourself were not doing this stuff. You understood. I think these people because of the nature of your upbringing. True.
1: Yeah. And I think there was in the study, I was the object. I was the thing that everyone was looking at and considering and studying. And when I started writing about sex and sex workers, it was a way to kind of reverse that where I became the observer and they were the observed and my shrink calls that like passive into active where you take the thing that was done to you and you reverse it. So you are the one doing the thing. And I think that that was, um, absolutely part of it. And I think healthy and exciting for me.
0: I was going to ask you, would your shrink say that that sort of reversal is healthy? Is that healthy behavior to switch it?
1: I mean, I think it depends on what you're switching because it can also, you know, somebody who is bullied can become the bully. That's the sort of dysfunctional version of it. I think my version of it was largely healthy, but it, there's also ways in which um, sex work is, Martin Amos has called the porn industry a rough trade. It's... Uh, in my opinion, a tough business, and so there were certainly ways in which I saw human relationships get distorted and and turn to the things that were transactional.
0: Well, sure. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's and it, it. You can think a lot of different things about porn and the sex industry, but you cannot think that it's uninteresting, <laughs> right? Anybody who ponders this for even a few seconds it's like wow who are these people who do this and how do they do it i mean just to have it's a strange thing to say maybe but like the will you know like the you have to have a certain amount of nerve and a kind of control i mean there's a joke about porn acting being the the greatest acting in the world like if you're actually in a porn film convincingly portraying somebody having sex in a a meaningful way like you're enjoying it and there's no lights on you and cameras and you know what i'm saying to pull that off you've got to be a hell of an actor well i
1: think especially for the men right i think it's maybe a little easier to fake it if you're a woman but if you're a guy you really have to show up or everyone's going to know
0: right so with these guys, I, have, I think these guys use drugs though, right? What do they do? These guys are. Sometimes. Not
1: Sometimes. all the time. Sometimes that's just what they're good at.
0: <laughs> it's just their thing.
1: <laughs> Everyone has a gift.
0: <laughs> Everyone has a gift. Wow. So what is it like to be on a set like that? Where so like these like incredible, uh, incredibly unconventional sex acts are, you know, unfolding before your eyes while lit and filmed and all the rest like and you're standing there I guess you get to a a certain place where you're sort of normal for you if you're covering this stuff on the regular
1: yeah I mean especially initially it was absolutely like fascinating and just compelling and complicated you know over time it did become more banal you know and you definitely see that in like the crew members you know there's in the finished product of a porn movie, you're seeing usually like a man and a woman, and maybe there's another person, but that's it. And there's so much you don't see, which is the crew, the director, what the cameras are doing, the lights, um, all the sort of stuff that's involved. And so you definitely see the sort of banality of the reality of making pornography in the crew members who are you know there's a couple having sex in front of the camera but like the camera guy is just like trying to stay awake and I found that myself over time which was kind of like okay you know they're sort of going through these choreographed positions what am I going to have for dinner and I did get more more jaded it was hard to find something that (laughs) I certainly tried but I I I sort of sought out at a certain point um, some of the most extreme things in the business and it was hard to find something, still is hard to find things that in that realm are shocking to me. I've heard heard and seen practically everything there is. When I started writing about the porn industry, it was late 90s, the internet was just becoming a big thing and the porn industry was like, oh my God, we can like funnel our content directly into people's homes. This is like, amazing. And there was a lot of money floating around. And the cost of getting into porn, as a creator, the barrier had lowered because anybody could afford a video camera. And so it became very competitive in the late 90s, in the the valley, in the industry. And in the early 2000s and so you saw people engaged in this sort of stunt sex aspect of like how far can we push this how many guys can we get to have sex with one woman in one day and that became part of like my niche as a journalist at the time was covering the absolute craziest stuff domestically and then i was a reporter on a playboy tv show called sex etc um which I described as 60 Minutes on Viagra, where I also um, (laughs) went with a crew and we did stories in Amsterdam and London and Mexico. And so it became a sort of global um, beat as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's interesting because I was sort of thinking of the movie Boogie Nights, which depicts the porn industry in, what, the 70s and then into the 80s. And then that movie drops, I believe, in 1997, and then you are getting into this line of work right around then, but maybe a little bit after. And at that point, the industry is going through a big upheaval with the advent of the internet and porn going online. So that changes everything, right? I mean, everything, What there was the big shift from film to video from 70s to 80s, and then 80s to 90s is from video to the web.
1: Right. And it was really a, a booming time for the business until um, the market became saturated. The content became pirated. When Bush was president, there, was, there were various efforts by the feds and some by the LAPD to crack down on pornography and then the great recession happened and so by 2008 2009 people are not buying dvds anymore people are not paying for content online and the porn industry is starts really struggling and and people had also gone to prison on through federal prosecution on obs- obscenity charges and that definitely also had a chilling effect, you know, you were going to be a little less inclined to make a really out there porn movie that might make you some money because you could get a charge for it.
0: So when you're doing this television work and you're out in the field in various ports of call, <laughs> that sounds, is that sounds a,
1: so romantic when you say it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but is there a, a story you can tell? I mean, you must've seen some, some stuff. Working on that show and going out and meeting people, seeing what all sorts of different uh, takes on the sex industry cross culturally. Like, what's a good, what's a go to story for Susanna when you're describing that time in your life and that work that you did?
1: It's a wonderful question that I appreciate, but it's like, what kind of question, what kind of answer do you want? Because my, I have <laughs> answers that are so, that are like stomach churning. that in private company i would tell but might not be a good idea for this forum
0: what about what about like a memorable person is there like a is there somebody i mean
1: i'm I I, i mean i can put it politely or i mean
0: sure go for it
1: um we were doing a story in london And we actually, we had this one story, this was for sex, And we had this one story and it fell through. And then the producer I was with kind of like cobbled together this story that was about the sort of fetish culture there, you know, the whole latex and whips and all that sort of thing. And we found a guy who kind of set up a party for us in his warehouse somewhere in London. And there were all these people doing all these wild things. And he had, he was a coprophagiac he wanted women to he had a custom toilet where he could engage his fetish with
0: well it's like coprophagia is like what he like he's into poop and he wants to be pooped on that kind yeah. of thing and um okay
1: sorry then he had like a custom toilet that he could like be under and then the woman would sit on it But that's not the interesting part of the story. What was interesting to me was that he and I had a completely lovely conversation about this in, you know, the front area of his warehouse. And he talked about it in this very, you know, cool, insightful way. And he was willing to talk about it. And he had gone to great lengths to pursue the thing that was of interest to him, which was completely out there and nauseating to a lot of people but it was what he was into and he was willing to not only make it happen and pursue it but he was willing to talk about it what I have always admired about that whole world of sex work or porn stars or fetishists is that they were very willing to be sort of shameless and brave about what they did and they didn't hide it and they didn't suppress it and they didn't punish themselves for it they were um they had they were willing to just be who they were and they were willing to suffer the judgments of others so they could do what they wanted to do and i thought that was um sort of lovely
0: so i gotta ask do you recall what his rationale was for wanting women to poop on him? Like, does he, I mean, if he you said he was cool and like delightful, like he'd put some thought into this, like, what What was it? What was it about it? Like, cause it seems like it's related to shame, right? I don't know what, what else it would be. But.
1: Yeah. You know, I don't remember that portion of the conversation or if I even asked him to sort of psychoanalyze it. I mean, I would assume it has something to do with his mother. <laughs> Isn't it always that case? And he may have not had like a read on it, you know, in, in that sense, but I, yeah, I don't, it was, I don't know, maybe it was a way of, he'd been shamed about something, but this was a way to, to, to sort of reinfuse it with some type of pleasure. I'm not really sure.
0: Yeah. That's a complicated one. (laughs) That's a hard one for me to understand, but I guess that's. To each their own. <laughs> i
1: telling that story later, but oh well.
0: Hey, it's, it's part of your story. It's part of your story, <laughs> right. the work that you did and the people that you met along the way. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, this book is called Data Baby and it is obviously very much about this study that you were a part of throughout your life, you know, starting in early childhood. But it's also in a larger sense, your life story and a kind of coming to term story with who you are and where you've been and like who your true, like deepest self is. And there's kind of reckoning with parents and the failings of parents and so on and so forth. But one of the parts of the book that I found personally interesting was this post sex, cetera, like kind of post sex journalism phase of your life where you moved to New Orleans because my parents are both from Louisiana and I've spent a lot of time down there. And so the fact that you were in New Orleans When Katrina hit is interesting. I mean, it's that was a historic storm to say the least. And I saw the aftermath. I want to say I was down there, God, it would have been some time, maybe less than a year, but like maybe 10 months or something after the fact. It still looked like a bomb had gone off. There were still like boats on top of houses and cars upside down in the street. I mean, it was crazy. The amount of destruction and and just the geographic uh, the geographical magnitude it was it was a lot of neighborhoods that had been leveled it wasn't just like an isolated neighborhood over in the ninth ward like my uncle drove me through parts of town the trees had all been denuded the roofs had been torn off of homes for miles miles and miles and miles so. I read that part of the book like mournfully and with some awareness and interest. And I'd just like to hear your take on it, like your time in New Orleans, what you were doing down there. And then just maybe for my listeners, talk a little bit about what you did when the storm started to roll in.
1: So after about five years of of sort of writing about Saxon porn in LA, I got burned out on it. I started referring to the porn industry as a meat grinder for the human condition. And I wanted to try something new. I had never been to the South. I had been in a relationship for a lot of the time that I was in LA and we had broken up and I was ended up looking at a map and was like, maybe I'll move to new Orleans. I mean, it sort of fit what was of interest to me. It was kind of like a sexy body body sort of, damp place, looked like a place you could get in trouble in. So, you know, within maybe a couple of weeks, I had moved out of my apartment and gone to move to Louisiana. I remember not long after I moved there, somebody said, people come here to die. And I thought, it's a little little grim, Um, you know, but I rented this like amazing apartment on the the French Quarter border. And it had like this It was on the second floor, it had this wrought iron railing on the balcony and a giant old oak tree. And there were, um, you know, years of Mardi Gras beads that hung in the tree. And it was just like, it was just this beautiful, very different life. I didn't have a car and I would ride my bike around ride my bike up Bourbon Street as it was like coming alive and hearing the music wafting out of the bars and every once in a while you know a parade would come down the street and the music would come in the windows of my apartment and it was my intention was to take what i had seen um in la and write a novel that was set in the porn business that was what i really wanted to do but i struggled to do that in new orleans i was also working as a freelance writer And I ended up after a year moving to a different apartment that was a little bit darker, that was in the bywater and was running out of money, got into a relationship, we broke up and I was really devastated. I became suicidal didn't leave my apartment for a long time. And I was just sort of starting to come out of that in late 2005 when I saw that a hurricane was heading towards that part of Louisiana. And I wasn't familiar with hurricanes. (laughs) It was... you know, in hindsight, you know what happened, but at the time it was, you know, hurricanes would roll in, everyone would freak out, and things tended to be fine. And I just remember looking at the size of Hurricane Katrina on my computer screen, and it was just massive. And it was looking to make a near direct hit. And I just thought, I got to get out of here. I ended up evacuating with a neighbor. It took us something like, I don't know, 12 hours to go a two hour distance out of the city. And the first, it was dark. The first band started to hit. The car I was in broke down. We got out of the car and a sheriff came by and he rolled down his window. I smelled the alcohol coming off of him. I think he was like drinking to calm down. And I said, please don't leave me by the side of the road. And it was, we ended up getting the car going again and I evacuated, but that was essentially the night before the storm hit. And then I stayed with like maybe a dozen other evacuees who I didn't know in this um, house in uh, Baton Rouge. And um, then it was, I think that Tuesday, the city started to flood. And we watched it on TV and eventually realized we were not going to be going back anytime soon. And I flew to stay with a friend of mine in Virginia and um, then went back to uh, New Orleans in November. So a couple of months later. And it was just I mean, everything that you said, it was just It's so hard to describe what that storm was like. The magnitude of it and what it did to the city was unlike anything I had seen or seen since. And um, I went to the place where I'd been living and part of the roof had come off and everything, a lot of inside was covered in mold. A lot of the stuff that I had was ruined. I went in the back and there was this massive pecan tree that had just been tossed like a toothpick. And the roots were just all up. And the, there was like an above ground pool of somebody's that had gone, you know, like 50 feet. It was just insane. And then drove out of the city across, um, is it Lake Pond? I can't say it. Pont- Lake Train. Yes, thank you. That bridge. Yeah. And then halfway out the bridge, the bridge was just gone and then going through the forest would have been mississippi is that the other side of the bridge and ex- exactly yeah. what you said where the tree forest the trees are stripped and then which is unbelievable you go half an hour and it's the same and just the size of the storm was just unbelievable i think my you know thankfully i evacuated and i was able to retrieve some some of my things but i definitely it fried the experience. Fried my brain. Not that my brain wasn't already squirrely to begin with. <laughs> um, so when I so I ended up staying in in Norfolk, Virginia, where my my girlfriend lived, and um, rented an apartment, and really couldn't write well. I felt and became a waitress at a certain point, and it just took a long time for my brain to sort of repair itself. But. It was devastating to see what the storm did to the set to the to the city and it was just heartbreaking.
0: So you had this bad breakup in New Orleans that you talked about that really affected your mental health. And then to lose your home and to be in that close of proximity and to be a victim of that level of destruction traumatized you.
1: Sure
0: right i mean you say it fried your brain like just i I guess i'm trying to understand clearly what it was was it a combination of the breakup and the physical destruction or do you think by that point it was just the hurricane and having lived through all that and then having kind of just been suddenly uprooted like everything that you knew in your day-to-day was just gone overnight basically
1: I think it was an accumulation of long, a lot of things that had happened over the course of my life. You know, I had this rigid mother who um, was not physically affectionate. I had a father that I loved and felt a connection with, but who left the home. And when he died, it really was like I lost the one person I had felt some type of connection with in my family. And it just broke my heart. And I dealt with that by losing myself in reporting on the sex business, which is in some ways a place that's devoid of love. And it was to some degree, an escape, an avoidance. Um, The night my father died, I was sleeping and my stepmother called me to tell me that my father was dead. And she said, yeah you should come and see him my understanding is that he was lying on the living room floor of their house and she was trying to get me to come and see his body and i declined and it's almost like everything i did after that for a long period of time was just refusing to face the heartbreak of that moment and when I ended up in New Orleans and the storm came through and pushed me out. I – it was sort of like the culmination of, like, everything just kind of falling apart. And I did have to rebuild myself. I think I did – I did become – more, I don't know how to make sense of it. You know, I, I don't mean this to you, but I sort of resent the notion in these interviews of like, I'm supposed to tell you the story of my life or this book, I'm supposed to tell you this story of my life where everything makes sense and everything kind of leads to this other thing. And then I met this person and they, you know, I, I, I discovered that, you know, everyone is a teacher. And so what I can really tell you now, having emerged from the journey, is, um, you know, m- my father died. I didn't deal with it. I, I lost a lot in, in New Orleans. And then it, I ended up in Virginia. And I was still sort of struggling to find my way. Um, and I think it wasn't you know, I stayed in Virginia for a while. Then I was like, well, maybe I'll move to, um, Austin, Texas. That'll, you know, I'm, I'm kind of like, where is the place where I am happy? Um, there's some, it's like Baudelaire says, um, I'm always happy in the place where I am not. So I just keep, then I moved to Texas. Then I was like, well, maybe I'll, um, move back to Chicago and I'll, I'll try living there. And, um, I ended up, um, meeting a man who threw it on a dating app and we got married nine days after we met, we eloped in Vegas. And I think, (laughs) I mean, who doesn't, I was still kind of like, it's all part of this period where I'm trying, I'm like bouncing across the country and bouncing around in these relationships. I'm, I'm a writer and an editor I'm a copywriter, but I'm kind of like searching for who am I, you know, searching for love. Where is the place where I belong? And how do I sort of reconcile maybe this feeling of always like sort of being broken? Maybe if I move here, it'll fix this. Maybe if I write this, it'll fix it. Maybe if I marry this person, it'll fix it. And I don't know. Where go from
0: there. Well, I mean, you were talking about this resentment of trying to like, like the implication that you're supposed to somehow have answers or have wrap things up in a bow, right? That's not how life works. Like, it, uh, you know, I think I'm always going to be confused. I don't think I'm ever, mean, maybe, maybe something goes really right for me. I'll achieve some sort of like penetrating insight into the truth of reality that will liberate me, but that's, uh, that seems statistically unlikely. And otherwise, you know, if you're a a more typical person, you sort of have to live with the mystery, right?
1: Right. I like that live with the mystery. Um, I don't particularly like memoirs, even though I wrote one, I resent the premise of a memoir, which is that, um, life happens in three acts. Um, happy endings are inevitable. And, um, you know, you make a series of rational choices about how you want to live your life when in fact it's a lot more chaotic and nonsensical and, um, random than that.
0: Well, and I would say too, you know, the section of the book where you are in Chicago, you meet this guy on a dating (laughs) app. (laughs) Nine days, nine days later, you're in Vegas getting married. And I was like, okay, like, okay, like, like, like my parents only knew each other for three months before they got married. They're still married, you know, like 52 years or whatever, you know, some, there's no rules right in love and war. But then you guys moved to Florida. And as soon as you moved to Florida, I was like, okay, this is fucked. Like things are going to get bad. <laughs>
1: Nothing good happens in Florida.
0: I just, I just, as a literary matter, I think I was like, okay, this is taking a dark turn now. We're in Florida. <laughs>
1: and you skipped over the cancer part, right?
0: Oh, uh, right. Yeah. You got cancer. I mean, holy cow. You have been it's through been
1: it. For cancer, it's really when you move to Florida that things have gone wrong.
0: <laughs> where, may I ask where in Florida or like the general region? Naples. Okay. Yeah. I know that area. <laughs> Down near uh, Fort Myers Beach. And... Oh,
1: yeah. It's great
0: sanibel all that stuff uh um, Sanibel
1: sanibel's a little lovely
0: it is i, I mean that's where as a midwesterner because i was raised in the midwest we would people would go down to naples fort myers sanibel for spring breaks and stuff like that
1: the snowbirds
0: to the snowbirds or just to like yeah just to us there wasn't even snow in indiana <laughs> it was just gray and cold we were just depressed and miserable went down there for like a week to try to resuscitate ourselves but that section of the book, I mean, you're sort of experiencing your own um, ultimately unhappy marriage. It was that you know this guy had uh, had a dark side, shall we say? You know, and I, I think that it's part of the story that makes a certain degree of sense considering the marriage that was modeled for you as a kid you know it's hard I think it's harder it's not impossible but it's harder for I think people who don't have any kind of model for how like a functional healthy marriage looks to sort of actualize one in their own life but this guy like in the beginning things were good right I mean obviously those first few weeks were good at least and then things kind of took a turn yeah and you got sick
1: So four days after I got married, I had an annual mammogram and um, learned that I had early stage breast cancer. It was a rare, more aggressive type. And so that was concerning to my doctors. Ended up having a, you know, there was no honeymoon period for the marriage. It was ultimately, you know, chemo, radiation, a lumpectomy, and a forced march through the medical industrial complex, as I like to call it. And that, you know, I actually at the time felt like it was punishment. My mother had long said, never get married. She wanted um, me to be like Gloria Steinem, although Gloria eventually got married. But the idea was, you don't need a man, men ruin your life. And so I should never get married. So I didn't get married until I was 43. And then when I got sick right after, I thought, oh, this is punishment for defying my mother's edict. And at that point, I had become essentially estranged from my mother when I was living in New Orleans during Hurricane Katrina. Obviously, the storm was all over the news, and she had never reached out to me to see if I was still alive. And I thought that was just a bridge too far for me. And so I had distanced myself from her. And so I when I got sick, I felt like this is sort of sort of karmic punishment for for doing what she said I shouldn't do. And um, it was difficult for me to be sick and be a wife. I didn't know how to do that. And but we stayed married and forged through it his professional circumstances changed and he had this opportunity to move to Florida. And so we moved to Florida and I think it was there where I was so far from where I had started in Berkeley. You know, at the beginning of our conversation, we're talking about and I wanted to feel special. And there's these intellectuals, you know, my parents' friends would want a Nobel prize and I'm living in this house in Florida. That's made of cinder block that looks like every other house on the same street in this gated and planned development. And there is a fake lake behind the house out of which periodically shoots this, like, you know, this fake fountain, stream of water. And it was like, what am I doing? (laughs) And I felt like I had become a supporting actor in the story of someone else's life. When I had initially had cancer, because I had this more rare type, the oncologists were interested in me. And there was one day when another oncologist came into my room where I was getting a chemo infusion. And he said, Hey, I have these other interns here, can we come in and I'll talk to them about your case. And so they all like filed in and I have these people standing in this half circle around me, you know, my brains sort of in this foggy mush from the chemo. And it, I think it resonated for me um, in terms of like being studied when I was a kid. Here I am back being this thing where these like important people are like, hmm, well, let's take a look at her. You know, what, what, what can her data tell us about, um, you know, her case? And I did start thinking about the block study again. I also felt like, I'm embarrassed to admit this, but like, I felt like, well, I'm married, I shouldn't really be writing about sex and porn anymore. I did continue to do it, but I felt more conflicted about it. It felt a little unseemly for like a wife um, to be doing. And the story about the block study was a way to, as I thought about it, kind of go straight, you know, go clean instead of like playing blue. And so I started pursuing that story and researching that story and I got more interested in that in Florida. I mean, what else was I going to do? There is nothing to do in Florida, that part of Florida, other than go to the beach. I had, and so I started thinking about the block study. Did they think I was going to grow up to be this person? Did they have data that could tell me about me? Did they know something about me that I didn't know? And if I go, investigating this story, did they keep a file on me? And if I find the file, will I open it up and I'll sort of understand who I'm supposed to be or who I am? And will it stop all this like bouncing around and looking for love and self-searching? And I'll sort of have these answers.
0: And that's really, I mean, this book is very much in a way about its own creation, ultimately. (laughs) And there is, it is, and there's a full circle aspect to it because you know, I you know, I'm not going to go into all the details. People can read the book, but you do end up back in Berkeley on a journalism fellowship. You sort of end where you began, and you sort of have this reckoning with this study and its Im- implications for you in your life, and you do r- reach some kind of resolution with it. It's not necessarily super clean and tidy. Uh, no, you disagree. You're making a face.
1: <laughs> I um. You know, I struggled with that. I guess I like lately the idea that you sort of pointed to is like this idea of eternal return. Look, if you conduct a 30-year study that says, that essentially proves as it does, that people are fundamentally who they are, that we can see when when we study these kids, we can actually predict like who's going to get depressed in adolescence who's going to you know whose parents are going to get divorced then my understanding is that people are largely who they are personality traits remain relatively stable over time therefore i'm essentially the same person i was when i was diddling around in that preschool classroom when i was 4 so it's just life is just one giant circle that brings you back around to who you really are i think that goes against the, the dominant narrative now, which is three acts. I start as one person, I have a crisis, and then I become someone else. So what I do here um, sometimes in feedback about my book is that there's this lack of, you know, um, it, I, these memoirs are by women and they're for women. And they're supposed to end up with either you get married, have a kid, or are just like super happy having become totally self-actualized and learn to love yourself. That's, those are the three core lies of memoirs. And I resent the idea that like, that's a fairy tale that women are supposed to plug their lives into. That's not reality. The most successful versions of those are ones written by women who three years later have completely changed their life and then delivered deliver another memoir about this new person that they've become that's like completely not the person they claimed they were at the end of the last memoir. So I think I'm sort of I do like the idea that the novel uh, the novel, that the memoir sort of ends up speaking of the novel I've started writing by the way, but, um, <laughs> but that the memoir sort of ends up where it started. It feels right to me, but I don't know that it's like the most popular ending I could have delivered as far as what people want.
0: Well, I like the idea of cutting against the grain on that front. You know, because that is kind of ridiculous when you think about it, the ways in which authors and female authors, you know, maybe in particular are sort of asked to fit their life into this mold. That's not the way life is. It doesn't square with my experience of it. And I think maybe your approach is more honest and true to life. And I want to ask you before I let you go, if that is you on the cover of the book, is that you? That's not you. It's not me. It's just a like a stock photo they took, or some sort of okay. It is okay. because it doesn't look like you. I was like, "Is that her?" When she was little, it doesn't really look like you. Um, and you said you're working on a novel. That's the next project.
1: I am. So speaking of the eternal return, so I'm I've um, I'm back writing this novel set in the porn industry, and I um I'm excited about it. I found this memoir writing to be really difficult. And um, it gave me migraines. And it really, um, you know, I wrote it under contract. I found the book publishing industry to be very constraining and have very limiting and limited ideas on like what a book should be. And I, it made me sort of not love writing in a way. And so I, working on this novel, am just enjoying doing all the things um, that writing outside of that system allows me to do, which is to be like unfettered and creative and free and also draw on all this like knowledge I have of like 20 plus years writing about the porn industry. And it's also like fun and funny. So I've Um, at least in terms of book writing and forsaking nonfiction for fiction now
0: okay is there a working title for this novel
1: yeah it's it's trip t-r-i-p-p
0: trip okay well we'll keep an eye out uh, out for it thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me congratulations on data baby and uh, best of luck with the fiction
1: thanks so much Brad
0: all right, you guys, that was my conversation with Susanna Breslin. Her memoir is called Data Baby My Life in a Psychological Experiment, available from Legacy Lit. You can find Susanna on the internet at susannabreslin.com. Follow her on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Don't forget to subscribe to The Other People Show wherever you get your podcasts. You can also subscribe on YouTube, follow the show on social media tiktok instagram twitter and blue sky i would love it if you signed up for my weekly email newsletter over at bradlisty.substack.com and i would really love it if you joined the other people patreon community over at patreon.com other ppl pod help keep this show going into the future if you have a couple of minutes and you want to do me a quick favor please rate and review this show wherever you listen apple podcasts spotify you know the drill. Give the show a rating, write a little review if that's an option. It helps the show find new listeners. If you would like to get another people t shirt or a sweatshirt, you can do that at otherppl.com, the show's official website. And finally, a quick plug for my latest book it is a novel called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, available in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook, so if you want to read my book or have me read it to you, that's an option. You can do that. Again, the book is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. All right, so coming up on Friday, there will be a new flashback episode where I dig into the archives and share an outtake from a golden oldie. And then on Sunday, it's TBD. I'm still working it out early here in the new year, shaking off the uh, the cobwebs, the rust. You know what I mean getting back into the swing of things. So there will be an episode on Sunday. It's just not officially solidified yet. So stay tuned.